Well, good morning, everyone. It's exciting to continue this morning in our study of the book of Titus. And for those of you who, uh, who may be guests or you may be joining us for the first time, uh, while we're in the midst of Titus chapter 2, and actually we're looking at the last half of Titus 2, which we just read, uh, you shouldn't feel daunted or overwhelmed by jumping in even at the midpoint. If you're watching online and you didn't catch the, the first part of this series, uh, Titus is only three chapters long. And for the sake of our teaching series, we've basically broken it up into two sections uh, for each chapter. So it's a six-week study, and it would be very easy for you to go back and, and look at some of the things we've already taught. And uh, it will be very easy, I think, for you to jump in this morning with us, even if you haven't been a part of those previous, uh, those previous weeks of the study. Now, what we've seen in the book of Titus is that in each chapter, the way it's been divided for us, of course, originally this was written as a letter to, uh, to Titus, who was serving as a missionary evangelist, a pastor on the island of Crete, who's establishing these churches uh, in, in these sort of major sections of the book that are now broken up into chapters for us. We see in each one some very practical application for the way the church should live, the way we should conduct ourselves. And that practical application is always tied very closely to a, a grand theological truth. And in fact, there's some beautiful and lovely grand theological statements throughout this book. And in fact, the the subject of our study this morning is one of these truths. Now, at the beginning of Titus chapter 2, if you were with us last week, we saw that um, Paul, in his thinking and addressing Titus in the church there uh, in Crete, he's been talking about the need for elders and for the body at large to be able to uh, identify false doctrine, those who would want to add anything to the gospel, and be able to refute that, right? To be able to speak up against it. It's part of the reason why we have elders. And then he goes on as we get into chapter 2, as he's been thinking about false teachers, and he pivots to have a conversation with all of us about the role in our life, both both of giving instruction and of receiving instruction. And he talks specifically about a couple of different groups. He talks about older women, younger women, older men, younger men. He talks about slaves. And as Jeff, uh, I thought, very beautifully put it last week, no matter who you are, you, you are kind of several of those things, right? Because to someone, you're a younger man, and to someone, you're an older man. And to someone, you're a younger woman, and to someone, you're an older woman. And, and so we find in that, not necessarily specific things, but rather broad principles about the in which, uh, as Titus says here at the end of the section we studied last week, the way in which all of us have the opportunity to adorn the doctrine of God, to beautify or to enhance this incredible truth of who God is and what he's doing among men. We see uh, in the Gospel of Luke that there's a a portion where uh, the same word, this idea of adornment is used. And it's used as the disciples are walking through the temple and they're looking at all the ornamentation. They're looking at all the beautiful work that's been done to beautify the temple itself. The temple is spectacular, but there's all this adornment. When it talks about us adorning the doctrine of God, it's that in our conduct, in our attitudes, in our interactions with one another, have the opportunity to make an appeal, to become appealing or to increase the appeal of the truth of who God is for our friends and neighbors. And some of that happens in the way that we give instruction, the way we receive it. Now he'll anchor this then in a theological truth. And in verse 11, you see right there at the beginning, he says, for he's, he's talked about the fact that we're called to adorn the doctrine of God. And now he's going to say, why? And he's going to say how that happens as well. And he's going to continue this thought, this stream of thought here about teaching. He's talked about false teachers. He's talked about the kind of instruction we should have in our lives. And now he's going to talk about a significant teacher that you may not actually be aware of. Now, you may think back on your life and think about your favorite elementary school teacher, or you might have a mentor. I think we've all got people that we would look at and go, these people taught me in significant ways. Maybe it's a significant leader in your life, or maybe it's a spouse. There are all kinds of teachers 
The reality is that you and I are constantly teaching and we are constantly being taught, even, even sometimes by experiences or sometimes uh, by, by places where we didn't necessarily sign up for the class. Does that make sense? I remember um, sort of learning this the hard way, uh, this, the, the constant teaching that's happening in our lives. I got called into a student-teacher conference when my son Jack was in first grade. We were living at Hume Lake, and I got called into a student-teacher conference. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be about, but the teacher sits us down, my wife and I, and she says... Uh, I have some concerns about a report that your son gave. They were supposed to do a report on someone from their family who inspires them. And your son, Jack, uh, gave a report about the fact that he's inspired by his deceased brother, Randy, whose head you all are keeping in your shed. And she goes, I don't know whether he's just being a liar or whether we need to call the police. Like, I'm not really sure what's going on. And I knew immediately what had happened. You see, uh, about a year prior to that, I'd been cleaning out the shed. And in the very back of it, there's, we have this old mannequin head. In fact, it's still in the garage. We have this old mannequin head that I used to use when I was in a band to display hats and caps and that sort of thing. And when we stopped touring, I just shoved it in the back of the, the shed and I never thought about it again. Well, I'm cleaning out the shed with my son and he kind of looks back through some boxes and he sees this mannequin head and he goes, what's that? And I was like, don't look at that. And he's like, what is it? And I was like, well, it's just a, it's your brother from before you were born. You used to have a brother. His name's Randy and he passed away, but mom couldn't bear to get rid of all of him. So we kept his head in the back of the shed. And at the moment, he kind of freaked out as a little guy. He's mom, he ran inside. She's like, your dad is teasing you. It's not true. Just relax. So he, he ended up laughing about the tease, right? He got it as a joke. Well, what I didn't count on was the fact that then some many months later, when the teacher said, who's someone in your family that you're inspired by? that my son, who was in first grade, would attempt to uh, amuse his class with the same sort of inappropriate joking, right? I had taught that without really thinking about the, the, the lesson. I didn't realize that I was giving a lesson uh, and it ended up being the wrong lesson. We're taught all the time by all kinds of things. I, uh, when I lived at Hume, I was taught by the snow. Uh, about what you can do with a four-wheel drive and what you can't do with a four-wheel drive, right? I think this season of wrestling with and struggling with COVID-19 has taught us in the body of Christ something very significant about the difference between going to church and being the church. We've all sort of had to come to terms with the idea. And that's not something, that's not a course we signed up for. It's not a course any of us would have volunteered for. But we've learned some things this year. COVID in some ways has been our teacher, There are moments in our lives where we're taught by things that we didn't necessarily anticipate. And we see a very beautiful, a glorious example of a teacher you might not have expected here in Titus chapter 2. As he sort of lays out this truth of where our teaching comes from. So let's just kind of, I'm going to walk you through it. I want you to see it. The first thing I want you to see here in this last section is it in the midst of this grand theological statement... He shows us immediately, it's immediately obvious, what, what are two incredible epiphanies, right? Two incredible epiphanies. And just so you get the sense of what, what I mean by epiphany, um, in the liturgical calendar, in fact, we're in the middle of the season of epiphany right now. That begins on January 6th, and it runs through the beginning of Lent for those who are on a liturgical calendar. But the idea of epiphany is simply the idea of the appearance of something that was previously unseen. The appearance of something that was previously unseen. Now, in the church calendar, we specifically refer to the, to the, the appearance of the divine, right? And he, he refers to two of these epiphanies in this particular section. Look, look at with me, if you will. He says in 11, for the grace of God has appeared. He's just talked about adorning the doctrine of God. Now he says, the grace of God has appeared. That word appeared is the word epiphanos. That, that's where we get our word epiphany. 
Something that was previously unseen has been revealed. He says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So what he's pointing at here is he's talking about the revelation of the grace of God as made manifest in the incarnation of Christ, in his sacrificial death on our behalf, in his resurrection from the dead, and in his gracious distribution of resurrection life to those who believe, right? He says the grace of God has appeared. There's an epiphany. And it happened in the past for us, right? Even when Paul is writing this, he's referring to an epiphany that happened in the past when the grace of God was put on display. Now, this doesn't mean that the grace of God began at the incarnation. God has always been gracious. We see lots of examples of that in the Old Testament. But what it does mean is that God's grace is most gloriously and clearly put on display in the person and work of Christ. So first he points us to the epiphany of the grace of God being put on display in a way that we will never see it more clearly demonstrated than it was in Christ's incarnation and work. Does that make sense? That's the first epiphany in this text. As we read on in verse 13, he talks about a second epiphany. He says this, uh, talking about those of us who have received his grace, received this salvation. He says in 13 that we are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That word appearing, again, epiphanos. There's a second epiphany. And it's the appearance of His glory. The epiphany of glory and the epiphany of grace we see in Titus chapter 2. The epiphany of grace and the epiphany of glory. And that epiphany of grace is the moment when our lives were transformed. When by His own work, by His own love, literally by no merit of our own, by no work and effort of our own, God in His great love for us died on our behalf, took our sins upon Himself, shed His blood, rose from the dead, and then gave us as a gift the opportunity to be redeemed, to be purified, to be adopted into his family, to be sons and daughters of God. That's the epiphany of grace. But we also look forward to another epiphany, don't we? We look forward to the epiphany of his glory. And that is the day when we believe that Jesus will return, that he will come to earth in strength and power and full glory. Now, that doesn't mean that he will become glorious at the epiphany of glory. He is already glorious. And we see his glory revealed intermittently. We see it revealed in our community. We see it revealed in his scriptures. We see it revealed in in creation. His glory is revealed, but not fully. The glory of God that we see now is just a shadow of the true glory that will be revealed when he returns. We see him as he is and he restores all things. When he wipes away every tear, right? When he makes everything new, that is the epiphany of his glory. When we will see his glory that was previously uh, unseeable in that same way. The, the Greeks would use this word epiphany to talk about the sunrise. When the sun would come up, they would call that an epiphany. That's something that exists that was previously unseen. Or when a flock of birds would burst out of a bush or out of a tree, that was referred to as an epiphany, something that was there but was not clearly seen. That's the idea here. So he points us to a timeline, if you will. He's laying out a timeline for us in Titus 2. And he says, we're, you and I, in the middle between the epiphany of God's grace on display in Christ and the epiphany of his glory, which is still to come. And that in the middle, for those of us who believe in those things, our lives are shaped. So I'd actually like to suggest to you that what we actually see here in Titus chapter 2 is not two epiphanies, but three epiphanies. And maybe for the third epiphany, we would use a lowercase e instead of a capital E because we're not talking about a divine epiphany, but we're talking about Christ revealed in his people. 
There is a revelation that happens in between the epiphany of grace and the epiphany of glory, which is the epiphany of God's chosen people in fulfillment. So what's here, let me just kind of walk you through this so you see it. He says, in talking about the work that Christ does in verse 14, he says that this Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Now, you can sort of take that in, but I want you to know that what Paul's doing here is he's, he's intentionally pointing back to, to the Old Testament. He's pointing back to Exodus. When he talks about Jesus giving himself, right? The Lord Jesus, who will return in glory, gave himself. He's pointing directly at Passover. He's pointing at Passover and he's saying, in the Passover, there was the giving of a sacrificial lamb uh, so that the the angel of death would pass over. That's what, what we celebrate in Passover, right? He says, Jesus gave himself. So he's pointing at Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover. Then he says, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, right? To redeem us from lawlessness and to purify. This is also a pointing back to Exodus because what God did when he called his people out of their enslavement to Egypt is he redeemed them. That's the way it's described. He redeemed them from their enslavement to their Egyptian oppressors. It is very clear in the New Testament that that was always meant to be a type of the redemptive work that Jesus does in our life. We are not oppressed by Egyptian slave masters, but we have been enslaved to sin and death. Jesus fulfills the redemption that was hinted at in Exodus when he redeems us from our enslavement to sin and death. He not only, he not only fulfills the Passover, he fulfills the redemption that we saw typified in the Old Testament. And then it goes on to say, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. This points directly at the covenantal nature of God's arrangement with his people uh, in, in some ways, both to the covenant he made with Abraham, but I think more importantly to the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. So he not only draws them out of Egypt through the Passover, right? Then he redeems them from their enslavement. And then when they get to Sinai, he gives them the truth and says, if you will be obedient, you will be my people. I'm creating for myself a chosen people. What Paul says here in Titus 2 is that we in this present age are the fulfillment of all those types. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things and that what he was always doing was creating for himself a chosen and a precious, a peculiar people. That's us. So three epiphanies, two capital E epiphanies and one lowercase e epiphany. The epiphany of grace, which is the death and incarnation of Christ, his resurrection, his saving work. The epiphany of glory that is still to come. And in the here and now, you and I are existing in the lowercase epiphany, the revelation of God's chosen people. He died, it says there in 14, that he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself of people for his own possession. Part of his purpose was to create a people who would be, the word zealous there, by the way, just means uh, as enthusiastic as God himself is, right? So when Caleb is said to be as zealous for God as God is of himself, that's the concept. He says he, he redeemed us and he purified us from all lawlessness, that we would be a people who are as eager to do good works as God himself is to put good works on display, what we saw in the epiphany of grace. And when it talks about good works here, it's not talking about good behavior. It's not that we would be good boys and girls and that we would always, you know, eat all our vegetables and that we would always let other people out in traffic. It's not talking about internal good behavior or moralism. It's talking about external demonstration, the adorning of the doctrine of God. 
that we would put goodness on display like Christ put goodness and grace on display at the epiphany of grace. Does that make sense? So three epiphanies we see here. The epiphany of grace, the epiphany of glory yet to come, and we find ourselves living in this intermediate time where His glory has not been fully revealed, but we wait anxiously for that to happen. And in the meantime, we have the opportunity to put on display a revelation of what it looks like to be God's chosen people. He goes in here and talks about the fact that that we are called to adorn the doctrine of God. It's important to understand that the adornment of the doctrine of God is not for God. Right? We don't adorn the doctrine of God for God's sake. So it's not that he would look at us and go, oh, wow, you, you made the truth of who I am. You made the truth of what I'm doing in the history of mankind so much more beautiful. Thanks for doing that. I really love the decorations your lives have provided. It's not that we adorn the doctrine of God for his appreciation, although he is glorified by it. But the sentiment of the book of Titus, and particularly Titus chapter 2, is that we live faithful lives because of the epiphany of grace and the future epiphany of glory, that we would adorn the doctrine of God not for his sake, but for the sake of those who might look with a a bit of a squint at the doctrine of God. Those who might question whether Jesus is truly who he is, or who might question whether grace is actually even possible, who might question whether they could ever be worthy, or whether eternal life is even something obtainable by human beings. For those who might look at Christ, or who might look at his word with skepticism, the adornment of the doctrine of God is what we're talking about as a church when we talk about unforced appeal, right? Our fourth vision pillar as a congregation is that we would be people of unforced appeal rooted in a unblushing oddity. We talked about unblushing oddity as we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Living in the kingdom of God looks very countercultural to the, to the wisdom of men. And we adorn the doctrine of God that our friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members, the people around this world who might otherwise look askance at the truth of who God is and what he's done, would instead see the beauty of the lives that are created by the power of God and the movement of his spirit in us. He says here that we are meant to live this life, to be his people, that there's this epiphany and we're living in this middle space. And then the most beautiful thing is, well, well, how do we do that then? Like, how do we become the people that he's created us to be? And he tells us in this, and this is, this is that, back to that idea of a teacher you may not have expected. He says in 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And verse 12, training us training us. Some translations use the word teaching us. The idea there is of the idea of correcting or of raising up a child. We are all children of God. And he says there is a way prescribed by God that you and I are meant to be trained up or to correct or or to be corrected or to be guided or corralled in our lives. And the way in which that happens is by sitting at the foot of a very particular teacher, sitting at the foot of a very particular mentor, And the teacher that is described in Titus chapter 2 is grace. Grace is our teacher. Grace is the teacher that does a couple of things. He says that in the epiphany of grace, then there is this revelation for us that grace trains us and teaches us. And so there's this moment where we have to stop and go, what what does that even look like to be taught by grace? What does it look like to be instructed by grace, to have my life reformatted by the grace revealed in Christ at that epiphany? What does it look like to have my world turned upside down as I am mentored by the grace of Christ revealed in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus? 
Well, there are a couple of different easy sort of quick manifestations of that. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. We see that grace does all kinds of different work. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, for instance, Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We see that, that grace is a strengthener for us, that it provides strength. If we move on to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 15, listen to what it says here. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, 15, it says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We see that as grace extends, that gratitude also grows, that thanksgiving also grows, which in turn affects the glory of God, right? That progressive revelation of God's glory, which will be ultimately revealed at his return. So thanksgiving, uh, excuse me, grace gives us strength. Uh, Grace produces in us gratitude and thanksgiving. If we look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We see that grace steers our conversations. It steers the way we talk to other people, the way in which we evaluate what should be said and what shouldn't be said. It strengthens us. It makes us grateful. It guides our conversations. Look at this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. What it's telling us there, Paul says, rather than operating our lives and our interactions with other people based on the wisdom of the world or the common sense of the culture, we made all of our interactions with you simple, on purpose. They were sweet and simple as driven not by the wisdom of the world, but driven by the grace of God. So it shapes our conversations. It shapes our interactions. It strengthens us. It produces gratitude. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and talking about his own weakness, and talking about the fact that Paul says that he prayed for this thorn in his flesh to go away, that Jesus' answer is this. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We see that grace is a sustainer in the midst of our brokenness and our weakness in those moments where we don't know what to do or where to go or we're wrestling with something that we can't seem to find resolution to. That that the grace of God is our sustainer. And in Romans chapter 5, and by the way, I'm just giving you a couple of rapid fire examples. The Bible is full of these, right? In Romans chapter 5, in referring to the fact that we used to be reigned by sin, that we used to, sin used to be our king, our Lord, that now we are no longer reigned by sin and death. It says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 21, actually 20 and 21. It says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like, you remember what it was like to be reigned by sin and death. But the goal here is that the grace of God would reign in your life, that it would be the driving principle, right? So we see grace informs much of a person's strength. It informs their gratitude. It informs their conversations, their actions. It informs their weaknesses. It informs the very, every aspect of their life, right? Specifically here, then, he talks about uh, two, two specific examples, both a negative and a positive. He says in Titus 2.11, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it, and it does a couple of things. Look at verse 12. 
training or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the first thing. It's kind of the, the negative side of the coin. What does the grace of God do? What does it teach us? Well, firstly, it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to renounce ungodliness. So let, let's talk about this for a second. When we talk about godliness, so you understand what ungodliness is. Godliness is first and foremost a, a, a devoted action towards God. It, it's devotion in action, right? Godliness is devotion toward God that produces a life that then looks like Christ, right? Godliness is God-wordness. It's also God-likeness. It's living like God and for his glory. That's what godliness is. So when he says that grace teaches us or trains us to renounce ungodliness, what he's saying is that it teaches us to set aside um, any sort of devotion to things other than God and any kind of life that would mar the image of God. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about false teachers in Titus chapter 1. That the problem with a false teacher is that he will claim to know God, but deny him by his works. And what happens in that case is that then you have people who are saying, yeah, no, I'm a follower of Jesus, but the, the message or the picture that they're making manifest is not a, a picture of godliness or truth. It's a distorted image of Christ. Godliness is about an accurate representation of who Christ is because of devotion in action. Worldliness, on the other hand, or what he says here, it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and also worldly passions. Worldly passions are all the things that the rest of the culture, the rest of the world says matter. All the things that it would say you need to be hungry for, that you need to be preoccupied in collecting or holding on to, all of those things that drive the rest of the world, but that in the kingdom of God are meaningless. We saw that in great detail as we studied the Sermon on the Mount. Worldly passions are all the drives of this secular world that would say this is what's important. It says that grace teaches us to renounce those things. By the way, there is a distinct difference between renouncing ungodliness and renouncing worldly passions and denouncing them. It doesn't say here that the grace of God teaches us to denounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What it says is it causes us to renounce them. What's the difference? Well, denouncing is when I I am caused to look at other people and go, that person seems worldly to me. That person seems ungodly. That person seems like they're marring the image of Christ. That person seems like they're pursuing all kinds of wrong things. That person seems like they're living in immorality. The grace of God does not cause us to denounce ungodliness. It causes us to renounce ungodliness. What does that mean? Well, it means that I'm looking here, right? It means that I'm looking at the ungodliness that is embodied in me. And I'm looking at the worldly lusts that are embodied in me. And I'm paying attention to this. That's what the grace of God does. It causes me to correct what's happening in my life. But not only the negative side of the coin. Let's go back to the text here. He says this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Here's the positive side of the coin. Instead of ungodliness and worldly passions, it it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He says it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The the idea there of self-control isn't just of containing oneself, but rather of sensibility, right? Of soundness. We've talked already about sound doctrine in the book of Titus. The idea here of self-control is that we'd be sound in our thinking and in our actions. There's There's a personal aspect to it. Right? In fact, uh, some theologians will look at this and they'll see three dimensions. When they're talking about sensibility, that has to do with the way I perceive and act in and of myself. When he talks about uprightness, which is the second one here that grace teaches us to do, to walk in uprightness, that has to do with my interactions with other people. That I'm conducting myself in a way that is gracious and revelatory of the person of Christ in my human interactions with my fellow man. And then thirdly, when it says that it teaches us to walk in godliness, that has to do again with my devotion and action. 
So in some ways you can look at what grace teaches us and you can see both an internal dimension of what it teaches us to live self-controlled and soberly or sensibly. It teaches me to live uprightly with my fellow man and it teaches me to live as devoted in action in my relationship with God. You see, there's in, out, and up, right? That's what grace does for us. It teaches us to live this kind of life. And notice here too, it says again, it it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, uh, just as a side note, there is a beautiful and absolutely clear uh, depiction of Christ as divine. So if any, any of your friends or your neighbors who go, well, you know, was Jesus really God? You can go, well, yeah, the Bible says he was. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's who we're waiting for. But, but my point is this, that the grace of God not only teaches us to live soberly, and to live uprightly, and to live godly in our devotion to God, but it teaches us to do those things while we're waiting. And here's why this is important. You probably have met, or maybe been in seasons in your own life, where you're absolutely looking forward to the epiphany of God's glory, right? You cannot wait for Jesus to come back, for every tear to be wiped away, for every division to be repaired, for all the world to be reconciled and restored under the headship of Christ. And you look so eagerly at that, that your temptation is to sit idly, right? To just hunker down and sort of hope, hope, hope that he comes back. I want you to see that the waiting that's described here that grace teaches, when we sit at the foot of grace, it isn't a passive waiting. It's not that we lock ourselves in an underground bunker and we wait for Jesus to come back for the epiphany of glory that's yet to come, but rather that while we wait, we are living active lives. The lives of those who have been redeemed, those who have been purified from lawlessness, that have been chosen to be his precious people, right? Zealous for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. That was part of his motivation, the glory of God and the good of his people. So it's not, an, it's not a passive waiting, it's an active waiting. The grace of God teaches us to live and to be active. It's interesting, uh, even this week, uh, there was a, a question, uh, I put out a, a statement on Thursday night in the e-news about the kingdom of God and how we're anxious for the kingdom of God to come and for, for fathers not to abandon their wives and for wives not to abandon their children and for orphans not to be neglected and for aged out foster youth not to be disregarded and whatever. And I got a question from somebody who said, well, how, how, you know, where are we at right now? Like, where are we at right now? Is, is that already happened? Is the kingdom of God already here or is it still to come? Well, the answer is both. We know that God's glory will be fully revealed at the epiphany of glory, which is yet to come. But in this present age, which Titus, or Paul is talking about to Titus in the church at Crete, in this present age, we are called, as instructed by the grace of God, to live these kinds of lives of godliness and uprightness. Why? To bring the kingdom of God to bear in this present age until it is fully realized, so that God's glory can be incrementally and uh, expansively revealed in us and through us until it is fully revealed in in the coming of Christ. Does that make sense? We live in in the now and the not yet. You may have heard that before. The kingdom of God is available, but it won't be fully realized until Jesus comes in glory. But our waiting for that to happen doesn't call us to inaction. It calls us to live a life that is itself a lowercase epiphany, that is itself the revelation of something previously unseen. So last thing I want you to contemplate with me is how does grace do this? I see what grace does. It tells us what it teaches us to renounce certain things and to live another way, but how? Well, I'd love to suggest there's a couple of ways in which 
grace does this. The first thing I want you to see is that what grace teaches us is that we have everything we need. That we have everything we need. In the grace of Christ, we have been given everything that we need. So, so think about all the striving in your life. Think about all the striving that you see in this world. The selfishness and the hatred and the violence and the legalism and the judgmentalism and the pride and the, all of that. Those are all an attempt to get something. Sometimes to get something physical, sometimes to get your way, sometimes to assert your power. All of those things are an attempt to get more stuff and to keep it. But what the grace of God teaches us is you have everything you need. You have everything you need. You are a a son or a daughter of God. Your sins have been redeemed. The creator of the universe died in your place. He is the fulfillment of the Passover. He loves you and knows you. And all of your sins and all of your brokenness has been forgiven. You are welcomed and loved and adopted and you have a place in heaven waiting for you to spend eternity with Christ. Let me me just say this clearly as I can. There is nothing that you need that grace hasn't already given you. And anything you're pursuing that grace didn't give you, here's the opposite side of it, anything you're pursuing in your life that grace and Christ have not already given you, you don't need. That's as clearly as I can say it. You don't need it. So the first thing grace does for us is it frees us from all that striving. It frees us from all of that wrestling, from all of those pursuits. When you think about worldly passions, like uh, all of the lusts of the flesh that are an attempt to find some kind of joy or peace or pleasure or love or freedom or forgiveness or absolution or acceptedness, His grace is the only place those things are actually found. All the other things you might try, all the other places you might go on vacation, all the other stuff you might buy will not satisfy you. That's why Solomon will say, the eye never has its fill of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Those things cannot do it. But the second thing grace teaches us, not only that we have everything we need, but that we can be satisfied in what he has given and who he has called us. I would say the third thing that the grace of God teaches us is that we don't deserve any of it. So some of the reason why we struggle and we wrestle and we fight and we stress out and all these things is because we have this sense of what we deserve. We have a sense of what we're entitled to and what what, what our rights are. And so we're fighting to go, I deserve this and I deserve that. Can I tell you another thing the grace of God teaches us? The grace of God teaches us that we don't deserve anything. If we deserved anything, we could have done it on our own. If we were worthy, if we could be righteous... If we could be good enough, if we could memorize enough Bible verses or donate enough money or walk enough old ladies across the street, we would have done it. We can't do it. We are broken. We are bankrupt. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The grace of God reminds us, even though that's a painful reminder, it reminds us that we can't save ourselves. That we don't deserve it. And then what that in turn does is it creates a humble solidarity with our fellow man. Because you know what? Not only am I broken... Not only do I not deserve resurrection life, not only can I not attain it in my own efforts and striving, I am redeemed, I am being transformed into the image of Christ by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. But you know what? So are you. And so are all the people that live in these apartments and up on this hill and the people that live all around, everybody we know. They are all in desperate need of the grace of God because they're all just broken like you and me. And so the grace of God teaches us to renounce that ungodliness that would say, I'm something special. It teaches us to renounce those worldly passions that would say, I I can somehow satisfy myself or I can somehow do it. It says, no, forget that. You're not worthy. That's why Jesus had to do this for you. You can't climb the ladder. That's why he came down the ladder 
to you. The grace of God reminds us that we have everything we need. It reminds us that we deserve nothing. It reminds us that it's only in His grace we can be satisfied. It joins us in humble solidarity with the brokenness of our fellow man. And it shines light on a different world. The grace of God shines light on a different world. It gives us a glimpse through the brokenness and the decay and the selfishness and the pride of the world we see around us. It pulls back the curtain and says, there is a world where redemption can happen. Not by your own striving, but by the power of God. And once you peek behind the curtain and you know that that's possible, what ends up happening is that His grace creates a life that has been put to rights. And then that life becomes devoted to working so that his, his or her fellow man can be put to rights and the rest of the world can be put to rights until Jesus himself is revealed in glory. Does that make sense? So what happens is that once my life is transformed and I realize, wow, this isn't something I did. It's not something I could earn or achieve. It's just the love and the grace of God and only the love and the grace of God. Then I start to look around at the world and I think, I want that same redemptive power to break into everything. I want it to break into the lives of all the people I know and everybody that I love. I want the world to know that they can't do it, but Jesus has. It's a transformative effect in the way we view the world because we've looked through the curtain to the power and possibilities of the redeeming work of Christ, the epiphany of grace, and the ultimate epiphany of glory. The last thing I want to say is what we see here in this last verse, verse 15. It says, Declare these things. This is Titus, or excuse me, it's Paul speaking to Titus. He says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. I think there are, there are principles and ideas, you know, in the Bible that we, uh, that we can agree to disagree on. And, and even some of us here as the body of Christ, we don't necessarily see everything all eye to eye all the time, right? That's okay. There, there are things in the Bible that we might not see eye to eye on, but they're not hills to die on either, right? What Paul is saying here, when he speaks to Titus and then by extension to the church at Crete and then by extension to us, the lowercase epiphany in this present age, the church, the body of Christ revealed as the adornment of the doctrine of God, as he speaks to us, he says, don't back down on this one. There are places you can concede. There are places where you can turn a blind eye when somebody goes around you or they go over your head or they try and, they try and you know, uh, do what the false teachers in, in uh, Titus 1 were trying to do, saying, well, it, it's the grace of God plus this work, plus circumcision or feast days or whatever. There are places... Where, where you can concede, this isn't one, he says. This idea of grace as our teacher, of grace as our, as our educator is a thing that you have to fight for. He says, declare it. Encourage others and rebuke them in it. When they want to waver from grace, when they want to walk away from grace, when they want to add something to grace, when they want to say, yeah, yeah, the grace of God plus X, or the grace of God, but you also have to do this, and you also have to do that, and also we have to revere these things as if they were the grace of God. Paul says, no, no, no. Declare this. Rebuke and exhort. And he says, let no one disregard you, or literally that means let no one go around you, right? Don't, don't let anybody subvert this truth. This, he's saying to us, the grace of God, the grace of God that redefines our lives is a hill to die on. It's a doctrinal truth to hold unswervingly and to defend, to encourage and rebuke, and to not let anybody, not let anybody get underneath. We hold to the grace of God and allow it to be our teacher. And in that way, we adorn the doctrine of God and other people come 
both to appreciate the epiphany of grace in the coming of Christ and to anticipate the epiphany of glory yet to come when all things will be made right. And in the here and now, they come to be a part of the lowercase epiphany of a people chosen by God to be hungry, to live like him, informed by that grace. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us an excitement. I don't want to think about grace as a theological idea. I don't want to think of it as a noun to be considered. I want to sit at the foot of grace and let it teach me. I want to be trained. I want to be corrected. I want us, God, as your body in this place, to live lives that are sober and sensible, lives that are upright before others, and lives that are devoted in action to you. You've given yourself for us to redeem us and to purify us from lawlessness and to set us apart as a people who are uniquely enthusiastic or have the same excitement you do about doing good. God, help us to have that zealousness as we make something visible that was previously unseen. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.